Hey, well, welcome to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing our summer series with a variety of guests, and today we have Stephen Wellam, who is a professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist um, Theological Seminary. Um, hi, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Great to be with you, Nick. Yeah, thank you for uh, jumping on. So uh, before we actually begin, well, we're going to be talking about progressive covenantalism. And before we begin, would you care to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, there's probably a lot of things that could be <laughs> said, but uh, as, as you said, I, I, I teach at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Kentucky, and I've been here now. This is going, I'm in my 21st year, so time is flying by and uh, enjoyed my time here. Uh, originally, I'm a native. I grew up in uh, Canada, in the roughly the Toronto area. Uh, for people that uh, don't know all the geography of Canada, that's probably close enough. And uh, so I grew up there in a, in a Christian home uh, all the way through high school and uh, was part of, uh, became a Christian at 16. And, uh, and then I was part of uh, a, a Reformed Baptist church in, in, in Canada where uh, Pastor William Payne was my pastor and uh, I learned a lot from him. And then I went to uh, to school in after high school. I basically w- went to the United States, and I went to a school in Rochester, New York, Roberts Wesleyan College, to do a science degree. Met my wife. Uh, we attended uh, a Reformed Baptist Church, a New Covenant Theology Church in in Rochester, with John Reesinger as our our home pastor. And then uh, after college, I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, felt called to ministry. Uh, and did my MDiv, PhD, and then uh, pastored in the uh, in South Dakota in the prairies for four years. Taught for three years in uh, British Columbia in, at Trinity Western University uh, on in in the Vancouver, British Columbia area in Canada for three years prior to coming to Southern. And and I have been married now. This is my 35th year of marriage to my wife, who I met at college. And then we have five children that uh, range from 30 years old all the way down to uh, to 20 years old. So wow. that's a little bit about me. Wow. Yeah, you got a full house. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, it's been good. So it's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like you've been kind of all around North America. And British Columbia is beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous. Um, but uh, the Lord called us to come to Kentucky. Kentucky's beautiful, but it's hard to beat the uh, Pacific Northwest. But uh, it's a very beautiful area, but we did enjoy our time there for three years, and uh, but then came to Southern and, and just have loved our time here in Kentucky. Awesome. So the one thing is that uh, most people probably know you from your book, Kingdom Through Covenant, with Peter Gentry. Hopefully I said that correctly. Yeah, Gentry. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So with that text, I mean, it's it's quite a whopper. I guess what led you all to pursue that and to go down that road to write that book? Well, uh Peter and I uh, both are from Canada, and so uh, even though we didn't know each other, you know, much uh, in those years, he taught at Toronto Baptist Seminary, which my brother now is the principal of, and my hometown pastor taught homiletics uh, there. So there's a lot of connection. So we both came to Southern at the same time. Peter is uh, is uh, you know his specialty is the Septuagint, so he bridges Old Testament, New Testament. He uh, is a linguistic, uh, you know, scholar and expert in those areas. And then he was teaching in his classes uh, Old Testament survey, and he was very, very influenced 
by uh, in his studies of uh, how the Bible fits together in a biblical theology. And so what he was teaching, and we were friends, what he was teaching in his classes were also dovetailing what I was doing in systematics. And uh, we would meet for prayer and discuss these matters, and students then encouraged us to, to say, well, why don't you two work together on uh, Peter putting your Old Testament theology notes together, which is pretty much what his part two of Kingdom Through Covenant is. And, uh, and then I came around to show uh, why covenants are important, how the Bible fits together, how this would apply to theological conclusions. And then we try to, as sort of a biblical scholar, systematic theologian of myself, work together, right? So how we work from a whole Bible to theological conclusions, and that's how the book eventually came about. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of research in it, and I was telling you before we started that, I was reading the abridged edition, and even even that, which is significantly shorter, it still has a lot of meat to so you can tell that there was a lot of thought and consideration that went into it. Well, what we tried to do with, the, with the, the larger edition, and now we even have a second edition, so the first one was 2012. Okay. And the second edition actually is 2018. So with the first edition, we, we put that out there and uh, tried to enter you know, a conversation uh, with um, not only biblical theologians, uh, but also its impl implications for systematic theology, and particularly dealing with the larger uh, systematic theologies of dispensationalism and, and, and covenant theology, trying to argue that um, uh, there's a better position between them. And uh, so that's where we were interacting with those positions, trying to lay out a scholarly treatment of it. The popular or the shorter version was just trying to give the positive case so that someone wouldn't have to go through all of the discussion of all the details, but just here's what we're calling progressive covenantalism in one piece type of thing. And that was how those books, you know, sort of fit together. So with that, with that said, would you mind go ahead and uh, defining progressive covenantalism? Yeah, I mean, progressive covenantalism is is you know it's a it's a theological viewpoint like um, a covenant theology or dispensationalism that's trying to understand uh, how um, God's unified plan, His eternal plan, uh, has been revealed to us across redemptive history, so that uh, how the parts fit with the whole. That's why it's part of a biblical and and a systematic theology. So progressive covenantalism is arguing that if you take both of those words uh, and sort of break them down, covenantalism first, uh, we would argue, and this would be similar to covenant theology and, and even dispensationalism to a certain point, that you cannot understand the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation unless you work through the biblical covenants. The covenants function as the backbone of the Bible's storyline or, you know, the meta-narrative or the grand story of Scripture, which is ultimately the the one plan of, of, of God in terms of redemption. And the covenants are necessary. I mean, not only are those covenants how God as creator and Lord relates to people uh, from Adam all the way through the biblical covenants and then to the church, but it's um, how we also see the unfolding of uh, God's plan through redemptive history. So covenants are important. So we are arguing here for a plurality of covenants. 
right? It's not just, uh, we'll get into later, I'm sure, covenant theology with its covenant of works, covenant of grace. Uh, those are theological constructs that are fine to a certain point, but if we first work from the biblical text, we're working through biblical covenants that are unfolding the one plan of God. And so you have to see how all the covenants build on one another, how they are interrelated, how the covenants where they start in creation with Adam, how the Noahic covenant is a building on the um, the what's there in creation, and then Abrahamic is seen in light of Genesis 1 to 11, and then Old Covenant seen in light of uh, of Genesis and, 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 and so on, all the way to Christ and the New Covenant. So the unfolding plan of God through the covenants and progressive is a term that, you know, progressive dispensationalists have used, and it's just part of progressive revelation. Uh, when we use the term progressive revelation, we mean that God's plan has given to us step by step over time. Progressive has nothing to do uh, with, you know, progressive thought or liberal politics or something like that, as it often is used in our day. It's just simply a revelation sense that God has not disclosed himself all at once. He has an eternal plan, but he's chosen to create and the fall takes place and unfold that plan through promises. And so through, and you put those two terms together, through the progress, right, through the unfolding revelation of the biblical covenants, we come to understand the one plan of God that reaches its fulfillment and culmination and end and goal in Christ and uh, for the benefits of his church. And so we move from creation to new creation through the covenants that are centered in uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the triune God in and through his son uh, by the operations of the spirit, bringing uh, salvation to this world, his kingdom to this world, and, and so on. And progressive covenantalism is also tied to the notion of kingdom. So kingdom through covenant is, um, you know, progressive covenantalism drops, you know, doesn't use the term kingdom, but it's, it's, in, it's tied to it in that uh, the unfolding of the covenants is the way that God brings his kingdom to this world. So God is king and Lord over all, uh, yet he rules through Adam, who then in the fall, uh, there is now divided. There's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, the saving reign of God that comes in. And through the progress of the covenants, God brings his rule and reign, he brings the new creation, uh, which is centered then in our Lord Jesus Christ, culminated in the new covenant and the people of God who are the beneficiaries of that, namely the church. So that's basically the sense of how the Bible fits together. And then that can be set over against various uh, viewpoints that that will pick up covenants, will pick up progress or revelation, they'll pick up redemptive history, but they'll put it together in slightly different ways. Absolutely. Um, so I've heard it um, both kind of like charged, and I, I believe in your book, you or y'all's book, you said that it's kind of a middle ground between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, with you know, you have to always you know situate your view. Uh, you know, in terms of other viewpoints. So we said a middle way. Well, you know, <laughs> when monergism first came up with 
they're, they went ballistic over that, um, thinking that our term via media was some form of liberalism or something. I mean, we were just simply saying uh, dispensationalism is a dominant way of understanding the whole counsel of God. Uh, covenant theology is a dominant way. Uh, there's not none of these views are absolutely true and none of them are absolutely wrong. And in fact, we would agree with, you know, I mean, Christians have to agree probably 90 percent or so or whether otherwise you're not reading the same Bible. But at certain points, uh, we are going to not be dispensational and we're not going to be classically covenantal. Our view would be, I would say, uh, a modification of covenant theology, yet um, there's elements that, you know, dispensationalists have said that uh, make good points, and they've uh, they forced covenant people to reflect on certain texts in a certain way. So that's why we said our position is neither dispensational, it's not classic in the covenantal sense of it, and particularly uh, the paedo-baptist, the infant-baptist, uh, Presbyterian reformed, uh, Christian reform sense of it. And so it's a mediating position between those. Right. That, that was a great articulation. So with, with that said, with what you just said about, you know, the Pado Baptist, you know, Westminster kind of co- covenant theology, I guess, how would you first describe uh, the covenant of grace in comparison? Like what is the progressive covenantal view of the covenant of grace and how does it different from the Westminster covenant of theology? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a great question, and 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 of course um, we can talk about uh, you know views within covenant theology that hold similarity, but there's also major differences within covenant theology as well that often mm. people don't <laughs> to recognize. They always don't agree with one another at every point. You just have to look at their their arguments back and forth. So let's let's first think of covenant theology in its sort of broad sense that I think the Westminster Confession and other statements would hold to, and then there's there's modification and debates within it. So historically, uh, covenant theology would hold to um, a pre-temporal covenant, uh, which would be tied to the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis, which is be tied to the eternal plan of God between the triune persons. We would not disagree with any of that. You have to hold to <laughs> um, an eternal plan. So whatever it's called, I'm happy with covenant of redemption and so on, they would hold to that eternal plan. And then in history, they schematize history. They are trying to put your Bible together in the sense that they look at a covenant of works and then a covenant of grace. And that's the way of speaking of of the historical covenants. Now, they obviously acknowledge the biblical covenants, uh, but they tend to take the categories of the covenant of works, and that would be found in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, with Adam. And there, there's a whole understanding that Adam functions as the covenant head, or another term for it is federal head, covenant head of the human race. He represents each one of us. Uh, He is in a good state, but not a glorified state. Uh, He is to obey, so there's the notion of works, Uh, And then there's a whole debate within covenant theology, whether this is a gracious state or not. We'll just leave that (laughs) to the side. But he is the one who, in his obedience, uh, would then, if he did obey, would bring about a glorification, right? Mm -hmm. Yet he doesn't obey, and there then is the beginning of the covenant of grace. And and they would say in covenant theology that the covenant of grace begins in Genesis 3.15. So in some sense, you have two covenants found in Genesis 1 to 3. You have the covenant of works and you have the beginning 
of the covenant of grace, and and then all of the historic biblical covenants. So you would have Noahic, you would have uh, uh, Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, or Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant, New Covenant, all put under the larger rubric or the category of the covenant of grace. And here is where you then also have historically law gospel. Covenant of works would be seen as law. Covenant of grace would be seen as grace or gospel. Of course, there's debates then within, right? So what's the old covenant? Is this a republication of the covenant of works in terms of law? You know, there's all kinds of debates there. But overall, the covenant of grace is a gracious covenant that spans all of redemptive history. And they then speak about the substance or the essence of that covenant is the same all the way through Old New Testament, uh, yet its administration varies. So its administration varies under under Moses, it varies under Christ, and so on, right? And that's a way that they look at redemptive history, and out of that then comes certain theological entailments, particularly uh, the role of, you know, the, the relation of Israel to church. Israel is the people of God under the covenant of grace. The church is the people of God under the covenant of grace. And there's some differences, but in essence or in the, the nature of things, they are both the same kind of communities. Obviously, the church has fulfillment in terms of Christ, yet they are comprised of believers uh, and their children, they're comprised of, then you go back to the Abrahamic under the covenant of grace, you and your children, the genealogical principle that carries through. And this gives warrant to uh, circumcision leading to infant baptism, Israel leading to church, the church being the true Israel, and, and so on. And then you have your standard uh, covenant theology works itself out from there. Right, so that's that's a view, and then there's differences within that about how the mosaic fits with the covenant of grace, and and whether this is now republication of covenant of works, and so on. Right, so that's standard covenant theology, and out of that then comes a certain understanding of the church as a as a mixed community, a believer unbeliever community, uh, and then also the grounding for infant baptism, and 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 so on. Right, our view would say, uh, you know, especially with the covenant of grace. You could use the category of the covenant of grace, uh, but it's really, it's not a biblical category per se. And what I mean by that is there's no biblical text that gives you the covenant of grace. It's a theological category. Theological categories are perfectly fine. Uh, the term Trinity is a theological category. Hypostatic union is a theological category. I'm all for theological categories. But we have to make sure that our theological categories are true to the scriptural presentation of them. And so what we would say, where we would differ, is there's one plan of God from eternity, covenant of redemption, pactum salutis. There is a covenant in creation. You can call it works. You can call it what you want. I think uh, we would rather call it just simply covenant of creation. Adam functions as the federal head. Everything in terms of his call to obedience would be very, very similar to Reformed uh, covenant theology at this point. Yet we don't then just say covenant of works, covenant of grace, as if we separate those two. Uh, we would say, no, the one plan of God is through the covenants. So the categories of law, gospel, works, grace, all those things are all true, but we have to derive them from the biblical text. And uh, we would then just do that in a slightly different way. So as we work through 
really progressive covenantalism at its heart starts with creation. Everything is so important for us uh, with creation. Adam is the covenant head. He is called to obey. We would say that it's a gracious, I mean, God created him out of grace. Uh, He's in a good relationship. He has everything to lose. Uh, He is not in a glorified state. Uh, By his disobedience, he brings sin and death into this world. So we have the concept of original sin, corruption, guilt, imputation of guilt, corruption that is uh, transmitted and passed on. And God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15. That promise is Christological, right? Ultimately, the seed of the woman is that which reaches fulfillment in Christ. And that promise is then unpacked through the biblical covenants. Uh, through Noahic. Noahic functions as another Adam. Uh, Abraham functions as another Adam, but it comes through that line. It comes through the nation of Israel. It comes through the Davidic king and uh, ultimately culminating in Christ. And God brings all of his promises of redemption to pass through the covenants centered in Christ. So, you know, we have a lot in similarity. We don't think that the formulation that they have of the covenant of grace is helpful. It's not that it's wrong, because ultimately what they mean by the covenant of grace really is the one plan of God. Mm. Um, but what it does for covenant theology is it tends to not handle the individual biblical covenants and see the contribution that each one of them makes. And instead, it tends to, what do we say, flatten them out. It it tends to, you know, say, well, it's the essence is all the same, but just a different administration. And it doesn't handle well the progress of the unfolding nature of the revelation of God, the the prophetic nature of that revelation, how it ultimately is anticipating and leading us to Christ. And so we say that it needs to be modified. Their view needs to be modified at a few places. Absolutely. That was excellent. Thank you. Um, So with that, the the question kind of comes to mind, even with, you know, these other uh, positions that, well, how does Abraham relate to Moses and then to the new covenant? Would you mind kind of explaining that? Yeah, and, and what we try to do, and, and I particularly uh, have this part in, in the book that uh, Peter Gentry, you know, we agree on on this, is, is you know, now you, now you have to go back to, you know, how do we put together, right, the unfolding revelation of God, and how do we do it? in terms of its own terms, right? This is a term that comes out of biblical uh, theology, right? We want to read scripture according to God's intent and how he has given us his word through the human authors and so on, right? And and so we we, we have emphasized strongly, and, and this isn't new to us, uh, people in the Reformed covenantal view um, hold to this, Richard Lentz, um, Edmund Clowney and others, but we don't think they follow it necessarily consistently, is that you have to read texts uh, in terms of their immediate or direct context in their books. And then you have to set them in terms of what preceded them, because Scripture unfolds to us step by step over time. And then you have to see how the all those texts fit in terms of the entire Bible, the entire canon. So we talk about textual context or horizon, uh, epochal horizon, where what preceded it, how is it leading us to this text that we're reading? We can't read a text without knowing what's already been given prior to it. And then ultimately in terms of the entire canon. Now, keeping that in mind, it's very, very important then as we read the covenants that we follow those three horizons or those three contexts. So that when you read about the Abrahamic covenants, right? 
you then have to say, well, Abrahamic covenant shows up in Genesis 12. We'll say that you know, at the end of 11, it's anticipating it. But Genesis 12 uh, through uh, Genesis, 50, Genesis 50 and so on. But what preceded the Abrahamic covenant? Well, what preceded it, obviously, is Genesis 1 to 11. Right? Um, now, this is all through the Pentateuch, but even how Moses is putting his his um, the Pentateuch together, he wants you to read Genesis 1 to 11 prior to uh, Genesis 12. Sounds obvious, but there will be implications for this. And then when you get to the Old Covenant, uh, which gets um, ratified and inaugurated and so on in, in Exodus, uh, obviously you can't read the Old Covenant in Exodus apart from the Abrahamic Covenant and then Genesis 1 to 11. And then when you read the Davidic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant is so important for us, uh, you can't read the Davidic Covenant apart from uh, the role of the king in terms of Israel, the role of Israel in terms of Abraham, the role of Abraham in terms of Adam, right? Mm -hmm. And so, see, what we're doing is we're seeing the progress of Revelation as the covenants unfold, each covenant building on to each other. So, with that in mind, Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, Adam or Abraham is presented as another Adam, right? He is the one who is the hope of the human race. We'd even have to go back to the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is so important. We often just pass by it and ignore it. But the Abrahamic or the Noahic covenant establishes creation order until the end of the age. It establishes two kingdoms, right? So there's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of man. And the Abrahamic, right, is out of that human race, God is choosing one man and eventually the nation of Israel. So Isaac leading ultimately to Jacob, to Israel, as the means by which Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled, right? So the uh, Isaac as the promised seed, now is the means by which, right, uh, Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. Uh, it'll come then through a nation and then ultimately culminated in an individual. Galatians 3.16, the true seed of Abraham ultimately is Christ, but there's the typological structures. The old covenant then is, in some sense, the mighty nation that God promised to Abraham is Israel. But it's through Israel that blessing will come to the world and it gets individualized again, not just as a corporate uh, priestly nation, which Israel is, but it gets individualized through the Davidic king. That's how you get back to an individual. It's in the Davidic king who will be the representative of Israel, who will be uh, the seed of Abraham, who will be uh, the great uh, Edemic figure, who will rule the world. I mean, that's the promise of the Davidic covenant. It's never realized in history. Uh, but it's anticipated and ultimately the greater David to come, which is the promise of the new covenant. So in the new covenant, the new covenant, which Jesus now brings, is that which brings to fulfillment the Davidic promise, that which brings Israel's role to its end in Jesus, the true Israel. It brings the Abrahamic promise to pass in him who is the true seed of Abraham uh, and ultimately the role of Adam. He is the last Adam. And what Jesus brings then is his people. Now there's people in the Old Testament Old Testament saints and so on within Israel, but Israel was constituted as an Israel within Israel. 
but Jesus' people are constituted as a believing, regenerate people, born of the Spirit, and so on. And so that's you, thus you have in the New Covenant his people, the community of the New Covenant is the church uh, that has continuity with old yet is not exactly the same as Israel. And that's how these covenants are relating to one another and being unfolded. Yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. Um, one, one, I guess, issue or doctrine that comes out of that, which you mentioned before, and it kind of implied through, um, you know, those being in crisis, the individualistic. How would you explain circumcision in relation to baptism and progressive covenantalism? Yeah, I mean, the very important issue, circumcision... Uh, becomes a whole test case of how one puts their Bible together. There's other issues like this as well, right? You know, how you understand the role of the Ten Commandments and its application to us today, the role of the Sabbath. Well, circumcision is one of those kind of issues of, well, how do you move from Abrahamic covenant ultimately to new covenant uh, and so on, right? So you have to follow the same, uh, we would argue, the same hermeneutical uh, steps as you do with the covenants. You have to mm. locate uh, the teaching of circumcision in its first uh, context, in its uh, textual context. Of course, that's found in the Abrahamic covenant. It's given in the Abrahamic covenant as a sign of the covenant. Uh, it's given as a command, right? It's not just ceremonial. It's, it's a command. And in some sense, it has. It, 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 you could say it's morally obligatory. I mean, covenant theology loves to just sort of relegate circumcision to almost... Um, you know, a kind of a ceremonial kind of thing. Well, it's more than that. Um, it, it's a command of God given to Abraham that marks uh, the male child uh, as part of the Abrahamic family and ultimately then tied to the nation of Israel. But obviously, in the Abrahamic uh, uh, covenant, it applies to Ishmael, it applies to the sons of Keturah, it applies to the households, it applies to everything. It shows their identity with Abraham. And in the ancient Near East, I think you can make the case uh, John Mead makes this case very well in our edited book on progressive covenantalism, uh, that this is a priestly sign, right? Uh, it's a sign that identifies uh, Abraham's seed and then ultimately the nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests, uh, a holy people, a set apart unto God. They're given the mark of that sign on the male uh, foreskin, and it sets them apart from the nations. It shows them to be a priestly people. And I think it also carries, in the Old Testament context, why the, the male, obviously, circumcision is, is done that way, but also it picks up Genesis 3.15. There's going to come a seed of the woman. Um, the, <laughs> there's every, every male child that came, in some sense, you could say, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Hmm. And of course, it's very significant that uh, Jesus' circumcision is mentioned in, in Luke's gospel, right? Uh, I would say this is the last really, really significant covenantal circumcision. Uh, he's the one to which all these circumcisions pointed in some sense. Um, but circumcision is a covenant sign setting the nation, uh, Abraham's line, the nation of Israel apart, uh, and it's put on the external. And it's also to reveal, and we know this in the Pentateuch, before you get out of the Pentateuch, Moses is already telling these people that what you need is more than just the external sign. 
external sign points to something, but you ultimately need an internal heart change. Hmm. This is what Deuteronomy 30 is picking up. This is what the prophets are picking up. So as you look at circumcision, you place it in the Abrahamic covenant. You see how it gets picked up in the nation of Israel. You see what it signifies under those covenants, right? And it signifies priestly nation, set apart, a whole host of things. But it also becomes in the Pentateuch, and in the prophets, as you work through Epochal Horizon and how our later scriptures picking it up, it becomes prophetic, anticipatory uh, of the need for a new heart. And of course, that's what uh, the the uh, prophets are saying. You have to place the prophets in their covenantal location too. They all write post-Davidic. Uh, they're all picking up the previous revelation. And what do they say? The new covenant that's coming will circumcise hearts, will transform those people, not just create a mixed community again like Israel, but will create a people who will obey God because of the coming of this Davidic king, this redeemer, this great prophet, priest, and king. So circumcision tracks itself out in the Bible as a covenant signed with Abraham through the nation of Israel. It becomes prophetic of ultimately the need for a new heart. And as it comes into the New Testament, it comes over into circumcision of heart, right? It doesn't come over to baptism. I've never understood covenant theology that brings, uh, tracks this out the Bible through, through baptism. That linkage is not there. Colossians 2 doesn't teach it and other places don't teach it. Baptism, in, in, on the other hand, signifies that one has a circumcised heart, not you need one. Uh, it signifies one's union with Christ. It signifies that Jesus who has come, the, the circumcised one, uh, is the one who has obeyed for us, who has died for us, who has inaugurated the new covenant and ratified it by his life, death, resurrection, and he's constituted a new people. And we have circumcision of heart, which uh, is not only regeneration, but ultimately you know, bound up with the full salvation that we have in him. Uh, and 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 you we signify that by the sign of baptism under the new covenant. So circumcision has to be understood in its covenantal location, how it gets tracked out through the canon, and how it's brought to fulfillment. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision is nothing. I mean, it's an amazing statement. And then he says, obeying God's commands is what's important. Well, any Jew in the Old Testament would say, I thought that was a pretty serious command of God, Paul. Uh, you know, we were to do this. Yet what he's saying is, is circumcision, right, now that Christ has come, has reached its fulfillment. And that's why circumcision, as what it was pointing forward to, has come to its end. He doesn't say it's now given over into baptism or anything else. It's given over into the transformation of God's people that happen by the work of the Spirit that joins them to Christ and so on. So that's how I would put together uh, circumcision across the canon. That was that was fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, so one one particular detail that seems to be another distinction between various groups is on the Decalogue. Um, is progressive covenantalism more like New Covenant theology in that, or are they more like you know the 1689? Like where where does it fall in terms of how we view the Mosaic Law or the Decalogue specifically? Yeah, that's a that's another great <laughs> question because I can't believe all the misunderstanding of our position on this. Um, so so let me let me let me first uh, talk about New Covenant theology first. When we wrote Kingdom Through Covenant in 2012, we said that our view was 
you know, part of the larger New Covenant theology. And and we're we, we were happy to do that then and this type of thing. But but the problem with that is is that New Covenant theology as a label, as a kind of descriptor of a viewpoint is so broad, it's so amorphic that uh, in 2018, we just dropped the label entirely. Hmm. Uh, because in New Covenant theology, you can have quite a variety of people. And uh, New Covenant theology, for instance, uh, you can have people who will deny any role of covenant of works or any role of creation covenant. We just totally stand against this, right? So we're not going to be adopting that kind of view. Uh, we think the creation covenant and and the role of Adam and obedience, really what the covenant of works is giving to you, we want to say more, but we don't want to say anything less. Uh, some new covenant theologians don't seem to hold to, and so that's why we say forget it. We're not going to identify that way. The same thing with the law as well is that some new covenant, I'm not saying all, I mean, I know many new covenant theologians that we'd be happy to say we agree with, but many of them give the impression they still operate with sort of law gospel and uh, the Old Testament covenant, the old Mosaic covenant, and particularly the Ten Commandments are law. Uh, New covenant is gospel. We're not under the law. We're under the gospel. We're under the new covenant. Therefore, we're not under the Ten Commandments. And, and so they get this antinomian look. We just reject this. I mean, we're saying this is really confused, right? So there's where I just want to go on record again. Uh, we don't, we're not antinomian. Uh, we don't reject the Ten Commandments uh, and so on. So, so what do we do with the Ten Commandments and the Decalogue and so on? Well, we do with it the same thing we do with circumcision. The same thing we do with... Uh, how we understand the covenants in terms of their context, the three horizons and so on. In order to understand the Ten Commandments, you have to say, well, where are the Ten Commandments given? (laughs) Well, they're given under the Old Covenant, right? Now, what they're reflecting, ultimately, we would say, is the Old Covenant can't be understood apart from ultimately creation, right? With Adam, right? All the covenants are linked. They go back, Old Covenant goes back to Abraham, ultimately goes back to Adam. Much of the Ten Commandments, we would argue, reflect, uh, I mean, they reflect basically the great commandment, love of God, love of neighbor. First four reflect on our obedience to God, and and the, the last six reflect on our obedience to neighbor, right? Where is that first given, love of God to neighbor? It may not be delineated in specificity, but I we would argue it's there in Adam. It's there in creation. Um, the, the covenant relationship between God and us seen through Adam is the first role that we have as image bearers is to love God, is to obey him, to serve him, and ultimately to one another, right? So the Ten Commandments are reflecting what God has created us for in the first place, to know him, to reach out, and to love uh, our, our neighbor as ourselves. Now, it's given specificity under the Old Covenant. It's important to see that. So that as you read the Ten Commandments, just look at the preamble of them. I mean, there's their specificity. I'm the Lord your God who took you out out of Egypt, right? Uh, Have no other gods before me, right? It's speaking of that place in redemptive history, right? So as we read this as Christians, much of the, what we would say, the Decalogue comes over into the great commandment, right? We still do not take God's name in vain. We still love him and have no other idols. We still do not commit adultery. That's tied to 
the purpose of marriage. We don't lie. We have private property. You have to tell governments this because they love to take it. Um, you know, you have all these kind of things where, you know, are still applicable to us under the new covenant. Yet, it's very, very important to see that we're not just sort of lifting the Ten Commandments, you know, in the terms of the traditional civil, moral, ceremonial distinction. You sort of lift them out of Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy and flop them over to the new. No, you see them in their full covenant relation. You see the demands that are made upon Israel that go back to Adam. Then for us under the new covenant, we see how the entire covenant is fulfilled. We are under the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. Yet under the new covenant, right, the same obligation of love of God, love of neighbor carries forward, but we see it in light of Christ. We see it in light of its fulfillment. So the preamble to the Ten Commandments comes over to us, we would say, in a greater way. The whole Ten Commandments, in some sense, come over to us in a greater understanding, a greater demand, a greater obligation. So instead of saying, uh, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, the Exodus itself in the Old Testament not only is an event in history for the nation of Israel, but becomes prophetic. It becomes typological of ultimately through the prophets of a greater exodus to come. That's what we've experienced in the new covenant. So we would say, um, I'm, you know, God can say to us, I am the Lord your God who took you out of sin. I'm the Lord your God who didn't just free you from political rule and slavery, but I brought you out of this bondage to sin in Christ therefore have no other gods before me in a far greater way. We would argue that under the new covenant, uh, much of the obligation of the Ten Commandments in and through its fulfillment in Christ is uh, made greater demand, greater possibility, greater reality by the work of the Spirit. So we're hardly antinomian, but you have to see the Ten Commandments and the Old Covenant in light of its fulfillment in Christ. That's why when it comes to the Sabbath, we have no problem um, seeing how the Sabbath doesn't come over into the Sabbath day in the New Testament. We see that the whole Ten Commandments, the whole covenant comes over to us in and light of its fulfillment in Christ. And we then have to work out canonically how it is ultimately fulfilled. The Sabbath is fulfilled in the greater rest to come in terms of Jesus. The exodus of old is fulfilled in terms of the greater act of redemption on the cross, which now applies to us in the new covenant. The greater love of neighbor and so on comes unto us in a greater demand under the new covenant, but it's all in and through the fulfillment in terms of Jesus Christ. So that's how we would see how the Decalogue comes over. Second Timothy 3 is very, very important here. All scriptures God breathed. That all scripture is referring in that context primarily to the Old Testament. Mm. So the entire Old Testament, including all of the covenants, all of the Decalogue, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, the whole shebang uh, is for our instruction, but it's for our instruction in and through the new covenant fulfillment in Christ. We need a whole Bible to understand what God is demanding of us today as his people. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, I mean, you, to, to be honest, you kind of anticipated and addressed like some of the questions that were popping up, so that was perfect. Um, um, with all that being said, I you've kind of addressed the antinomia and the New Covenant theology, um, because I often do see that, that classification of progr- progressive covenantalism being a branch of New Covenant theology, so I was curious about that. Um, 
Well, you have to remember, let me just stop you there and interrupt just there. Sure. What we have, what we find, uh, and it's sort of a, it's sort of a frustrating thing. I guess it's inevitable, but you, you find people locked into their theological systems that can't think outside their box. Yeah. So you have covenant people. So what do they do? Covenant people just tend to lump everybody as dispensationalists who's not covenant. So they just throw you into that label, right? Or they throw you into this new covenant label. They're not sure what to do with you. They really don't listen to your position as a position. Uh, they just sort of label you and then just, just dismiss you. The dispensationalists will label us, you know, as you're just old covenant theologians uh, trying to, you know, come under a different uh, guise or something like that, right? You're supersessionist or, you know, they, you know, their labels are thrown around, right? And what you have to plead for and what we're trying in the discussion is to have people understand positions as positions, right? Uh, what are you arguing? Why are you arguing this? What justification uh, for it, right? So because we uh, originally sort of identified with New Covenant theology in 2012, and, and, and I particularly did that uh, because I, you know, I, my, my pastor uh, in uh, Rochester, New York, when I was at college uh, was John Riesinger, who's very well known in New Covenant theology circles. Well, John was was a mentor. He was a great friend and and and, and so on. And, and, and I was greatly helped by him. And he's the one who told me to go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and study under Don Carson and Doug Moo and others like this. And, and I'm, you know, forever grateful uh, to John for that. And that doesn't mean I agree with every single point. Uh, but, you know, I didn't want to sort of dismiss my, you know, um, sort of forefather in the faith type of thing and say, oh, you know, I don't have time for you. <laughs> Yet what we came to see, uh, and of course, John Riesinger himself always held to uh, creation covenant. He also, you know, held to a proper understanding of, of, of some of these relationships as, as in contrast to other new covenant theologians. But what we came to see was the New Covenant label just wasn't helpful. It was being appropriated by certain people in directions so that, you know, as I said, um, creation covenant was often dismissed by some New Covenant theologians. Imputation of Adam's guilt was was gone. I think that's very serious. Ultimately, the some were denying the imputation of of Christ's righteousness. Wow. Um, you know, and only well, justification is only forgiveness. It's not uh, a twofold grace of the of the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience. We say, no, 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 no. The reformers weren't wrong on this, right? But if you give up creation covenant in the role of Adam and so on, then it's quite easy that you'll eventually give up imputation of, of, of the active obedience of Christ, right? So and then the antinomian flavor. So we wanted to say, no, we're not that. So let's just come up with a different label uh, to try to. But people haven't always been charitable and trying to say, okay, we'll try to understand their position as a position. People tend to just label, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's a good lesson to learn. You have to let each position speak on its own. And that's what we've tried to do with other positions. Let them speak, interact with them fairly. And we ask that they would do the same as with us. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, it and it, so basically, the the label was too broad, and y'all wanted to make sure you separate yourself from those that were kind of outside of the scope, and you know, just have that where you don't have to worry about trying to explain every single time that no, you're not that type of new covenant theology kind of thing, right? 
Yeah, that's 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 basically the point of it, right? It's <laughs> not to say that you know every some everything that New Covenant theology says we disagree with. We don't, right? I mean, we, as with all of these positions, you know, we probably with uh, most Christians, even if they differ on certain points, I mean, we agree on ninety percent of things, don't we? Uh, yeah. it, it's on it's on how you understand the covenant relations, how you understand you know, certain typological structures, how you understand the promises working, how you understand Israel church, how you understand there's where the differences will lie. And, and then you have different viewpoints that then emerge from that. Absolutely. Um, so it seems like um, your progressive covenantalism is pretty close to the London Baptist confession. Um, am I mistaken to think that? No, I, I would say so. I mean, obviously we're going to tweak it a bit right um and, and of course that makes some in in those who hold to 1689 makes them a little nervous at that but i mean i i was raised my my home church uh in canada it was 1689 i have no problem affirming the 1689 confession of faith and so on so as as we came you know as we as we wrestled with these issues though so even even the 1689 uh position which is a great baptist confession you know very similar to westminster but obviously baptistic and and not pedo baptist and so on mm-hmm. um there's even out of uh, 1689 those who can hold to it two different groups it seems to me uh that have emerged uh, you have sort of your standard reform baptists who still operate with uh the basic structures of covenant theology covenant of works covenant of grace except they're Baptist because they would say uh, the New Testament just does not allow for uh, the understanding of circumcision to baptism. The, the church is a regenerate people. And so, but they're basically following, you know, uh, uh, eternal plan, covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace, except they're going to say the scripture won't allow for the church to be this, you know, the, the sort of the same as Israel in that, and in, in the way covenant theology tends to to do that, right? Now, the 1689 Federalists are now saying that their position, and it may very well be the case, right? I would have to go back and do more work in Baptist history. I, I did not do all of that work. We came to it more from uh, biblical theology to systematic and so on. So I appreciate the work that they're doing in that. But they are now saying, well, we're the true uh, Baptist position, and my understanding is it's hard to do that because there was quite a few varieties, but they're now saying, and in some sense, the 1689 Federalists, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of similarity to what we're saying, except at a few points. So my understanding of their view, so the, the Renahans and the Barcellus and others like this who are presenting this, is that they would say, you know, there's a covenant of redemption, um, we would agree with that. Uh, there's a covenant of works. Um, we want to call it covenant of creation because we want to say more than, not less. Uh, we think it's a bit more robust than just simply a, the covenant of works. There's a greater covenant relation there. But still, the same principle that Adam is in a state of probation. He is to obey, show covenant loyalty, and, and so on. All of that is, is, is what we would hold to. And then they want to seem to say that they want to keep the confessional language of the covenant of grace, and they want to equate the covenant of grace with the new covenant, so that then the historic or the, the biblical covenants, Noahic, uh, Old, Mosaic, uh, Davidic, and so on, are not the covenant of grace. They're part of the plan of God, 
but they are anticipatory, revelatory of ultimately the covenant of grace, which is identified with the new covenant type of thing. And that way they preserve the language of the confession because the confession does speak about covenant of works, covenant of grace in those larger categories. And then they equate the, the covenant of grace with the new covenant. Now, at that point, uh, they're very similar to what we're saying, um, except I just don't see any reason for other than saying the confession uses the term the covenant of grace uh, to hang on to that language. Um, now, I don't dismiss the theological truth of what they're getting at in terms of the covenant of grace, but I think we just have to state it more accurately. Hmm. Um, so that's why we say one plan of God uh, that comes through the biblical covenants and, and, and the, that, that reaches its fulfillment in the new covenant. We would not say you have to equate the covenant of grace with the new covenant. What we would say is the one plan of God reaches all of its fulfillment in the new covenant. The other historic covenants are part of that one plan of God. Now, they would seem to say the same thing, but they want to hang on to the covenant of grace language. And we say, look, it's a theological term, which is fine, but we think we can say it better and more faithful and more biblically type of thing. The other point where there would be a slight or there would be more disagreement is that they still seem to operate with the tri tripartite division of the old covenant so that uh, the means by which we determine what applies to us today is that, you know, the civil aspects of the old covenant have are fulfilled. The, the ceremonial aspects are fulfilled, but the Ten Commandments comes over to us as eternal moral law. And we would say uh, that's just not how the Bible does that. Uh, we would say, yes, the Ten Commandments reflect ultimately love of God, neighbor reflect something of God's eternal moral demand and so on, yet they have to be brought over in terms of their fulfillment in Christ. So practically, we will probably live very similar, but we wouldn't be Sabbatarians. And I think that would be uh, a major point of division between the 1689 Federalists and ourselves. And that's now a debate over how should we understand the drawing of um, ethical parameters for those in the New Covenant. We do ultimately say the moral law of God is tied to the very will and nature of God, right? It's unchanging, but it expresses itself in the covenant obligations. Sabbath, in our view, was a covenant obligation for the nation of Israel under the old covenant, and it was prophetic, ultimately, of that which would come in Christ, which now is here, and we now obey the Sabbath by coming to salvation, rest in Christ. So that's where we're going to differ from them but there's where some of the differences lie with other Reformed Baptists, because we're Baptists, we're Reformed, but we're tweaking things just a little bit differently because we think it's more consistent with the scriptural teaching. Yeah, that was great. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so at, at the end of it all, uh, it's it's a big subject. There's a lot of, as you know, listeners can pick up on, there's a lot, to, a lot of things to explore I guess if someone was wanting to begin reading up on this issue, what books of yours would you recommend first and what other books would you recommend? Yeah, well, we've, I mean, the books that are, are you know, dealing with this, I mean, obviously Kingdom Through Covenant is the, is the major treatment and I would get the second edition because we tried to uh, interact with, you know, criticisms of the first one and, and clarify. And I think we, 
uh, at least I'll speak for myself uh, in in part one and three of that book that I are my sections. I, I try to say things I think better and more precisely. And you're always learning, and and trying to um, learn from your critics and so on. Right? If you're not willing to learn from your critics, then you know <laughs> you're never going to grow in your understanding of things. Right? But um, so I, I think that's probably the best. You know, if you want the full treatment, the shorter treatment that you mentioned. Um, God's kingdom through God's covenants is, is, a, is a shorthand version. And when that was written, we were already dealing with some of the criticisms of the view. So it's, it's, it's pretty much similar to the eight, 2018 version um, in a shorter version. The, the, the book that I edited with a former student and, and one who works with me, on our, I, I'm the editor of our journal here at, uh, at Southern Seminary, Brent Parker. He, he works as an associate editor. And, and he's a PhD grad here and he studied under me. Uh, he and I edited a book called Progressive Covenantalism. And what we tried to do is to have 10 chapters from various authors who you know were on the same page, uh, develop the view, deal with uh, circumcision, deal with Tom Schreiner dealt with Sabbath. I dealt with the role of the law. How do we determine ethics for a Christian today from a whole Bible? Uh, and, 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 and so on. Uh, we dealt with issues of, of seed. Uh, Jason Derushi, who's at Midwestern, and, and uh, Jason Meyer, who's the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist, uh, and, and others, you know, Ardell Canada in terms of uh, conditional, unconditional covenants, and, and uh, Oren Martin on the land, and all of these issues, you know, require further. When we wrote Kingdom Through Covenant, we didn't say everything, right? So there's the uh, working of the view and a whole host of areas. So that's an excellent number of essays. And we're intending to get another second volume of edited works, developing even more material uh, to try to help people see, you know, the fleshing out of of the particular position. Uh, a short little book uh, by Tom Schreiner. Uh, Tom and uh, we're called colleagues, uh, Peter Gentry, myself, Tom, others at, at the seminary here. Tom's wonderful friend, colleague, he agrees you know, basically no one agrees 100%, but we agree on on the basic parameters of the position. In in um, Crossway's biblical theology series, um, he uh, has a short little book on the covenants, and that's a quick, you know, read uh, on, on, you know, the covenants there, and that's a helpful uh, book to consult. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some others. I mean, Jason Derushi in Old Testament is writing on this. Uh, Andy Nacelli, some of his works, uh, he teaches at Bethlehem. New Testament is, is writing on some of these things uh, in, as he's doing that. Uh, Tom Schreiner's works. Uh, I've, I've been hugely indebted. Whether he would agree with my position, he probably wouldn't fully. But, you know, some of uh, Doug Moo's writings on Romans, uh, Don Carson's works, and he may not fully agree with me. On, on certain things, but you know, I've been helped as they thought through covenants and law and gospel and and those kind of issues. Uh, Brian Rosner I, I, from Australia, his book on Paul and the Law, I, I, I found in sync with what we're doing. He again may not agree uh, on every point. He's he's coming out of the Anglican tradition, but he comes out of Moore Theological College in in Sydney, which is strong for biblical theology. But his book on Paul and the Law, excellent. And uh, so those are some of the resources that I think are really, really helpful in, in thinking through how the whole Bible fits together and, and the role of the covenants and so on. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, so before we sign off, do you have any last closing thoughts? 
Yeah, well, I mean, in all of these issues, right? I mean, I, I think um, we have to remind ourselves as as Christians, right? We we differ on a few points, right? I mean, if we're true uh, Bible believing, historic, uh, tied to the creeds and confessions of the Church of the Ages, you know, Trinitarian, Christological, we're going to agree on more than we disagree. I mean, hopefully that's the case, right? Yet, um, you know, we 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 do still differ on how the whole counsel of God fits together, right? I mean, this is not a new issue. Uh, the early church wrestled with it, the Jerusalem Council, with the Judaizers, all those debates were covenantal debates, and we still have those debates with us today, right? We are seeking to stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before, yet we're trying to say, right, um, as we are always reforming, uh, we do so sola scriptura. Now, sola scriptura doesn't mean we don't learn from the past. We stand on on the creeds and confessions and so on. Yet, uh, we're always bringing our mind and heart and thought captive back to Scripture. We're always testing uh, the even our confessional standards in light of Scripture. We're not making things up brand new. Uh, obviously, we're testing them in light of that. And as those confessions, such as you know, Nicaea and Chalcedon and so on are tried and true. We know that they are true to Scripture, right? But there's a few points in in uh, on these issues of Israel Church and covenants and so on that the evangelicals and Christians have differed, right? And it's important to, uh, you know, bring um, our thought back to Scripture, to wrestle with these issues, to be fair to other positions, because what we want is to know God by his word, right? And we want to know uh, the glory of Christ that shines through the whole Bible, uh, the glory of the new covenant and all that he has done for us and unpacking of his work. And uh, this is what, uh, you know, is, is what we need to be as the church. We need to be biblically and theologically grounded. Uh, and especially we need to be that way because as, as we face challenges, like even we do in our own day, uh, with viruses and uh, who knows what economies and so on, we have to be grounded in the truth of the gospel. That's what's first. That's what's primary. Even in our evangelical churches today, people are being sidetracked by all kinds of issues, uh, secondary, tertiary issues, and we have to be brought back square to know uh, the glory of the triune God in the face of Christ, the truth of the gospel, and that's given to us from a whole Bible. Uh, and that is our joy and privilege to study. And so I strongly encourage, you know, uh, to be reading your Bibles, to thinking through these issues and to do so with the aim and goal of knowing God better. That was well said. Thank you for, uh, adding that to the discussion. Um, with that, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm sure this is going to be edifying and I'll probably go back and listen to it a couple of times just because I, I really appreciated it. Um, so thank you again for coming on. Well, Nick, thank you for having me. I appreciate you doing this, and uh, we need to have these discussions among Christians and to think through these matters. There's nothing more important, right, than than uh, to knowing God's Word. And so, uh, what a delight! And so great to have uh, you do this, and uh, it's been great to be on the show. Absolutely, thank you. <laughs>